Hey, thank you, Kevin. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Thank you for joining us here in person and um, later on on the podcast. Those uh, watching online, thank you for joining us here too. You know, one of the things I wish I could do um, with each one of you is sit and listen to some of your stories. We've been having a tremendous time, and we call our connect groups at nine o'clock uh, here at GPC, uh, hearing stories. And one of the stories I'd love to hear from you is a story of one of your greatest uh, memories, one of your greatest stories that you tell when you have time to just sit and talk and reminisce about. Oh, remember that time when I went hunting and I got that fifty-four thousand point buck somewhere in out west, right? Or you know, the time when I hit the game-winning shot or the time when I made the team that I didn't think I was going to make or the time when I got the lead in the musical that I never thought I would get at all or the time that I even got into the musical and I never thought I'd get into it all or, or the time that our parents took us on this incredible vacation or the time that I got to reconcile with my mom or dad after so many years, whatever it is. But, you know, there's, there's stories and moments for all of us and I wish I could just sit with you and hear what I'm going to call life-giving stories. Have you heard that phrase before, life-giving? What's life-giving to you? remember when we were in Dallas, that was one of the first times I heard that phrase is about something being life-giving. It's an interesting phrase, an interesting idea. I think we kind of all know what it is, those moments that give us joy and, and life and excitement, enthusiasm. They're almost always happy times, right? Even though we know we grow through trials, no one ever is like, man, it was such a life-giving time when I, you know, lost my mom. You know, no, no, it wasn't. But it was, but we don't think about it that way. But all of us pursue life-giving moments. It just is the way life works. One of the things I realize about life-giving moments for me, and I think it's true for you, is that life-giving moments are always, they have the, a couple characteristics about them, and one of them is that they're almost always temporary. So, for example, if you're going out to lunch today and you get hungry, you're going to actually enjoy a life-giving meal, but the truth is you're going to be hungry for dinner at some point, right? Like that, that meal doesn't ever totally satisfy. And if you've ever gone on a great vacation, it's not like you come home and you're like, that was the vacation to end all vacations. I mean, I'm, I'm, we never need to go anywhere again because we've been vacationed. You know? Well, no, it was, a, it was a great vacation, but it stirs up in you even a desire to do more of that again. And same thing for, you know, anything. When you hit the game-winning shot, it's like, that was amazing. Now I don't ever need to play this sport again. No, now you want to play it again. You want to keep getting better and better at it. Or if you had an amazing piece of cake, it's like, man, I'm never going to have to eat cake again because my appetite was filled. No, it's a life-giving moment, but I'm going to want more and, and better cake. In fact, it's a strange thing about life-giving moments is that they, they tap an appetite and that appetite is sometimes stronger even than our vision. The appetite makes us want to have life-giving moments over and over and over. And almost every life-giving story that you and I could tell would have a temporal quality to it. I need that fix again. I want that moment again. Now, they're permanent in that they're in our memory, but they're temporary by nature. And one of the strange things also about life-giving moments is sometimes we walk into life-giving moments and we think they're life-giving, but they're actually life-draining. Uh, you ever walk into a relationship and you're like, this is going to be an incredible relationship, and months later you're like, this has not been an incredible relationship, right? Like, I thought this would be life-giving, but it, it actually, actually isn't. One of the things about life-giving times, whether it's the joy of reconnecting with parents that have been long lost or restoring a relationship or having a, an incredible dessert or vacation or hitting the shot or making the team or getting the job or starting the business and having it be profitable, whatever it is. One of the incredible things about these realities of life-giving moments, if we're willing to see them for what they are, here's what I believe. Because they're temporary, because they're all temporary, it reveals in us, if we're willing to look at it, that there is something deeper that drives every desire that we have. 
because I enjoy time away with my family on vacation somewhere. I don't even, don't even care where sometimes. You know, whether it is to the beach, even though I hate the sand in the car between the toes, it does bother me emotionally. I'm trying to get over that. But I enjoy time away with my family and, and time away from the phone and just quiet time away. We enjoyed some time at a, a lake this past summer. It was great. Really enjoyed that. But if I'm willing to look at it, here's what that appetite reveals in me. That underneath that There's a desire, a deeper desire that is not quenched in this lifetime for me to find home with people I love. And because I can't find that permanently next year, I need to go on vacation again to touch that appetite again. When I want to make a living and make enough money to quote-unquote get by, I can get by, and then I realize if I'm willing to look at it, underneath that is a desire actually to control my world so I don't have to depend on other people, so that I have enough resources to make it. Even the appetite of food, like I I want my physical appetite met, but underneath that all is this desire of a deeper appetite for all of the good things that this world has to offer that is never satisfied and it keeps driving and driving and driving, which is why all of my appetites that are revealed on the surface are always, always temporary. So here's the thing that Jesus, when he walked on the planet, I think he understood by default the nature of our appetites, the nature of the things that we want. When we wake up in the morning and we want a better job, we want better relationships, we want to be more fit, we want to look better, we want to have great, you know, just a, a great life with so many people. We want these appetites. But underneath all of those appetites lie this deeper, sometimes dormant, sometimes unexpressed, desire for even more than we can put into words, a desire for joy, a desire for peace, a desire to be home, a desire to be accepted for who you really are, a desire to be loved, truly loved, without the need to try to find a new relationship to meet that need, that underneath all of the things we do lie this deeper level of appetites, the many, if not most of which, are not satisfied on this side of eternity. And it's in this gap between the things that we experience up here, the vacations I take with my family, and my deeper longing for home and rest, that Jesus enters into our world and says, let me speak to this gap for you. Let me, let me come into your heart. Let me come into your world and help you see your appetites that actually might drive further to where real meaning and real hope is found. And in this series we're on in Jesus, he comes and introduces himself in his way. And one of the ways he does that is he comes and declares, I am. And then he fills in the blank seven different times. I am, I am, I am. And when he uses this statement, I am, and I so appreciate that we sang that song, Greg, this morning about the great I am. It is, a, it is a hearkening back to the Old Testament where Moses was around the burning bush and, and God told Moses, I want you to go free my people from, from Egypt. And, and Moses said, well, who should I say sent me? And he says, well, just tell him I am sent you. Is that a first name? Or is that a last name? What, what is that? I mean, how are we going to reference that one? It's the eternally existent one. And so when Jesus comes to the planet and he introduces himself as I am, as we'll see this morning, I am, he's referring back 
to this great moment of eternal existence as God himself. And so we're going to pick up our story that we've been kind of walking through in the book of John. And if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there. If you don't have one with you, no problem. There's a Bible in the pew near you. It's our gift to you if you don't own one. But you can pull it up on your device or you can grab it on your paper Bible. Either one is great. But John chapter 6 is where we've been the past couple weeks. And John is the fourth book in the New Testament. The right two-thirds of your Bible, you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And John speaks to us. He tells a story about who Jesus is and how he interacts. And where we find ourselves now, toward the end of John chapter 6, beginning at verse 25, is that he, Jesus has already done two recent miracles. He fed the 5,000, and then he got, <laughs> he got on the water while the disciples got on the boat, and Jesus walked across the water, and the disciples rode across the boat, and they, they ended up in Capernaum. And, and here we see, beginning at verse 25, a pickup from where we had left off after Jesus walked on the water and the disciples walked, I mean, got on the boat. So verse 25 of John chapter 6, we, re- we read this. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, the they, by the way, is the crowd. So the crowd that had been fed the 5,000 and saw Jesus and saw the disciples get into the boat. They didn't see Jesus get in the boat. They saw disciples. They, they come around. They realize they're no longer, that Jesus and the disciples are no longer on that side. So they come around and they found him here. And so they asked him, did you take an Uber? Because you didn't take the boat, so how did you get here? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And so he answered them without answering them. Verse 26, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me. And then he contrasts it. Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. The very important verse. Look at the contrast in here. There's a not because, but because. Not because, but because. Not because you saw the signs, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Not because you're seeing with clarity of vision who I am, but because your appetites were catalyzed. Your appetites were engaged. You ate the bread and had your fill. And so that appetite of wanting to go on vacation next year, of wanting another good piece of cake, that appetite, man, that was engaged. And you're here again because you want more food. But you aren't here because you're seeing what that appetite means for you. You aren't seeing what that appetite drives to. You're not seeing well. You're just hungry and your appetite has been birthed and grown in you. So verse 27. Then he contrasts it again. Verse 27. Don't work for food that spoils, in the contrast again, but for food that endures. Like, don't just work for the appetites of this life that spoils. In other words, it's temporary. The relationship is going to be temporary. The food is going to be temporary. The vacation is going to be temporary. The job is going to be temporary. The rush of the winning shot is going to be temporary. Don't just work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So you don't just get it by going to the store. You know, I can't find it on Amazon. The Son of Man is going to give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Well, they're a little confused. And so the people, verse 28, they interchange with Jesus. Well, then they asked him, okay, well, what must we do to do the works that God requires? 
Like, what, what do we have to do to do the works that God requires? Do you see all the assumptions in their statement? First of all, there's an assumption that God requires you to do work. That's just the, the flat-out assumption, that God is going to require you to do work. If you want to be close to God and connect with Him, you're going to have to do a certain amount of work. So just, can we be clear, because I know there's a lot of laws around the God thing, can we just be clear, what are the works exactly that we have to do? Some people tell us we have to wear clothes a certain way. Some people say music only here and TV only here. And some people are saying foods are important this way and not as important that way. So can we just clear it up since you're here and you got here? We don't know how. Can you help us understand... Just what are the rules that we have to follow? What are, the, what are the things that we need to do to do the works that God requires? To which Jesus frames up faith in a very, very profound way. Verse 29. Jesus answered, well, using their phrase, well, if you want to talk about work, let me rephrase work for you this way. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Since when is belief a work? Imagine going to work and having your boss say, hey, what are you doing? You're like, I'm just sitting at my desk believing. Get to work, right? I mean, like, no, you're not going to work much longer if you're just sitting there believing. Like, since when is belief a work? But this is how Jesus reframes the whole context. You know, you want, well, you want to know what to do? Well, here's what you need to do. Believe. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so then they asked him. Because they're like, this doesn't make any sense, here's what I think. I think before they knew about evidence-based practices, they are evidence-based people. Here's what they say. So, okay, I hear what you say, Jesus, but, but can you help us really believe this? What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Like, you're giving us an answer that is so far afield from what I know. Because every other religious teacher says, here's the rules you need to follow. Here's what God expects of you. Here's how much to give. Here's how much time to volunteer. Here's how to dress. Here's how to talk. Here's the language you're allowed to use. Here's what to do on your weekends. Here's how to frame up your life to do the work that God requires. And Jesus says, well, forget all that for a minute. The work of God is to believe. It sounds so far afield, it is unbelievable, to which they're like, give us evidence that you are trustworthy, because you sound like a lunatic right now. No one does this. That's, give us some evidence. The, so what sign are you going to give us that we may believe you? What will you do? And then they say this, very important to understand. Our ancestors, I said, ate the manna in the wilderness. That is, as it is written, he will give them bread from heaven. The expectation, very important to understand this, the, very, the expectation of the people standing there talking to Jesus was this, that when the Messiah comes, when the Savior of the world comes, he is going to be able to reproduce the same miracle that Moses performed for 40 years in the desert. That he's going to be able to bring manna from heaven. The scope and the width and the length of this miracle is going to be consistent for the Messiah. So they're looking at the Messiah and waiting for the Messiah. They're like, you know, like you did the bread thing across the lake. We're, we're just about with you. And now you told us we just have to believe. We're expecting Moses the Messiah to do what Moses did. So you know about the ancestors ate man in the desert. So what sign can you do on the scope and width and scale of Moses like that? To which Jesus says to them, basically, you're confused. You're close, but you're confused. Here's what he says, verse 32. He said to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, you got it wrong. You think Moses did the trick. <laughs> Moses didn't do the trick. God did the trick. 
God did the trick. He happened to use Moses, but he would have used someone else if Moses wasn't there. Like it wasn't Moses. It was God who gave through Moses. And it is my father, God, who is now giving the true bread from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life or is life giving to the world. Okay. So it wasn't Moses. It was God to which they say, all right, sir always give us this bread. If you have access to that, then can you give it to us? We'll be glad to take that kind of bread from God if you have that for us. To which Jesus then declared, if you've been in church, you may have heard this before. This is the context for Jesus to say this, verse 35, I am the bread of life. I am the life-giving bread. I am the bread of God who has been given to you. You want me to give you the bread, you are talking to the bread of life. And then he clarifies it. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Those appetites that you have that drive you to want to eat or to go on vacation or to find joy here, those appetites that you have that are always cyclical and always temporary, those appetites you have, if you come to me, you'll actually never go hungry again. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. But as I told you, verse 36, you have seen me, and still you don't believe. And all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will, this is very clear, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have not temporary life, but eternal life. Not just temporary desires satisfied, but eternal desires met. And I will raise them up at the last day. And then this truth just kind of sits here without resolution. These people don't respond to Jesus' comment on this one. The moment sits, and the, the gospel writers, and John in particular, is a little funny with how they communicate time in their story. So we don't always know exactly what is happening when, and it's important to see some shift that goes on, and there's a shift that happens next. Jesus lays this out here, and what I think happens, this is me thinking now, and this is not in the Bible, I think that what, when he says these things, it begins to create a murmur and a stir in the crowd. They begin to unpack, like, he's the bread of life? What does that mean? God gave him to us. How does that even work? This doesn't make any sense. I think their minds are still in the temporal. And I think it filters down to the religious leaders. Because what happens next is the, the scene shifted. Verse 25 tells us we're at the side of the lake. But then Verse 59, at the very end, we'll get there, says this happened when he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And what happens next is I think the scene shifts from a, a lakeside conversation with people curious about how did Jesus get here to a conversation that shifts and moves toward a synagogue where the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, begin to engage Jesus at a more theological level about what he just said. And that is the very next verse in verse 41. It's the first time we're introduced to these people. Verse 41. At this, the Jews, first time we hear that so far. We th the Jews, I believe it's the religious leaders. That's how John refers to these people in the gospel. The Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, 
I came down from heaven. That's a great point. Like we, we have a question about this. We know where this guy came from. We have a question of origins. We don't believe him. We just don't believe that he came down from heaven. Mary and Joseph, we know them, not heavenly people. All right. Verse 43. So Jesus responds to them and says to them, hey, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. In other words, if your heart isn't prepared by the Father, if you aren't starting to see with the eyes of your heart, you will only see that Jesus is the son of Mary and Joseph. And that's all that you will see, and in a way, you'll be right. But unless God draws you in, unless your heart is softened to see that there may be something more going on here, you will miss the deeper reality. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, kind of invites them, pulls them in, verse 45. And it is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. As in God drawing them in, teaching them, being moved by God. Everyone who's heard the Father and learned from him comes from me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. And then he says this again. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. And then I am the bread of life. Then he says this, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now it starts to get weird. Jesus starts to get weird, and he starts to talk weird, and the, the leaders begin to talk weird, and it just begins to get really weird. This is where I think, if you've ever been around Jesus in these moments, people might say to him, Jesus, can we get a little clarity on your communication style about what you're about to do next? Verse 52, the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. They, they said, how can he give us his flesh to eat? And it just sounds so weird to us. Like, of course they can't give us his flesh to eat. That's really, really weird. Jesus doesn't even bother trying to clarify that. In fact, he just jumps into the deep end on cannibalism right now is what happens. In fact, um, some of the early Christians, you may know this, but the early Christians were accused of being cannibals because of conversation like what Jesus is about to have. And it's really weird unless you kind of get the perspective of what he's, he's doing. So Jesus said to them, verse 53, All right, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. That's great. Now, can you imagine leaving church on a Sunday and going, whatever, going to work, going into the afternoon with your family and be like, hey, what do they talk about at church? Well, I don't know, but the guy in front said that we should eat his flesh and drink his blood. That would go well, right? <laughs> I mean, what kind of cult have you joined? This is so strange. This is so strange. Unless you eat, eat, the, eat the flesh and drink the blood, you have, and then the end of verse 53, you have, you have no life in you. Please don't miss this verse right now. Look back at this verse with me. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, you'll have no life in you. We're going to explain the drinking and the eating in a moment, but you have no life. Here's what Jesus says. You get to decide if you think what he says is true or not, but what Jesus is telling me and what he's telling anyone who's listening here is we don't have the capacity, no matter how many vacations we go on, no matter how much money you're going to make, no matter how amazing your marriage is, no matter how amazing 
your money is, no matter how much amazing your power and reputation is, no matter how great people think you are, no matter how many game-winning shots you make, no matter how many teams you make or musicals you make or singing ability you have, no matter how great it is, here's what Jesus is saying. You don't have, you don't have the capacity in you. You have no life in you. You have no capacity to solve the eternal problem that you are itching to solve. Your temporary appetites are always going to want one more musical, one more vacation, one more sporting event, one more joy, one more resolution of the appetite. And Jesus is saying very clearly, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have not little life in you, no life in the eternal sense. What you have is small potatoes, and I do too. We have the temporary distractions. Oh, this will be a great vacation. I can't wait to get away. This will be a great little power thing. I can't, I can't wait to make a little bit more money. I'll get the new phone later. I'll get a new car later. I'll get whatever later. I'll get a new pet. I'll get a whatever later. Like, we'll get the next thing that satisfies our appetite. But this is so important. That Jesus is speaking to people whose temporary appetites like mine, and I think maybe like yours. If we can slow down and see them for what they are, they drive us to see, you know what, underneath that, I want a home. I think you do too. You want to be loved for who in the world you really are. You want to find a place of forgiveness like you have never felt before. You want to know that ultimately all of the tension and stress and pressure will be resolved. You want to find a peace of the Bible calls this thing shalom, a place of peace and fullness and wholeness. And Jesus is saying, let me speak into the appetites that you have. And please, 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 don't get so distracted with your temporary appetites that you spend all of your life moving from one to the next to the next to the next without being able to see that what they're actually all pointing to is Jesus alone. Because he says here, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, you have no life in you. No life in you. He goes on, verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my body is real drink, and whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Can you see how this would be strange? (laughs) Your ancestors ate the manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And don't miss that either. If you're someone who likes to fact check things, John didn't just throw that in as a backstory. He threw this in because if you want to know where this happened, go talk to the people who were standing there. Go talk to the people. Here's a synagogue at Capernaum. This isn't a fairy tale or a made-up story. This is a real-time location space where this actually happened. So a couple things from here. A couple things. First of all is this. Here's Here's what I want for you and here's what I want for me. I want for you, number one, to to come face to face with the reality of what Jesus said in verse 53 here. That unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, you'll have no life. Just to be clear, let let me take you back to verse 35, if you can go back with me for a minute, to make sure that we're clear about eating and drinking. He says in verse 53, whoever comes to me will never go, what does he say there? Never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So when he's talking about hunger and thirst, when he's talking about drinking and eating, he's talking about coming and believing. Let's let's recast verse 53 with the language of verse 35. 
Very truly, I tell you, unless you come to the Son of Man and believe in him, you have no life in you. Unless you come, every time you see come, the, the eating the flesh is the coming so you don't get hungry. The eating is coming, the drinking is believing, the drinking, believing, come and believe, come and believe. That's what verse 35 says. Unless you come and believe, come and believe. Unless you come and believe, Jesus says in verse 53, you don't have any life in you. And I'm not trying to discourage you or depress you this morning. I'm not trying to discourage or depress me. But I think it's very important to look, look at this face to face. Just own up to this truth. Unless, unless you and unless I come and believe in Jesus, I am never going to have, and you are never going to have the capacity to meet the deepest desires of your heart. Those desires that will always cycle around to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. You're not going to have the life in you that really satisfies. So Jesus says, you know, I've come to provide that. In John 10, 10, just a couple chapters later, Jesus says, I've come that they may have life, that you may have life, life, and have it to the full. That when you ask the question, what is really life-giving to you? And if I were to ask you, what is really life-giving to to you and life-giving to me? We could still tell the stories. And here's what I like about the Christian faith, by the way. You can still tell the stories of joy. You can still talk about the hunting trips and the vacations and family time and food and all that. Still do all that. That's great. But understand that underneath that, what that points to is a deeper desire to know God and to be known fully for who we are. So that's the first thing, to come face-to-face with, outside of this, I have no life. Second thing is this, I, I want for you, I don't ever want you to confuse um, your salvation with, with works at all. It's surprising to me, I think, when, um, when people come to faith or, or consider faith, and you probably talk with people like this too, the, the struggle sometimes is real. We just tend to import into a relationship with God this idea that somehow I must do certain things to keep a good relationship with him. When Jesus frames up faith from the very beginning. The people ask him, God, what do I, Jesus, what do I have to do? What are the works that I have to do to receive eternal life? What are the works that God requires? And Jesus just puts it so cleanly and clearly. The work of God is to believe. The work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. So I don't want for you, I don't want for you to, to merge and import into your world this idea that I've that somehow the work that I do, the kindness that I offer, the, the duty that I have, the obligations that I perform, the volunteerism that I do, in any way contributes to the fact that God has saved you because of his great goodness and great kindness. I just want to invite you again to come and believe in Jesus alone. Come and believe in Jesus alone and not come and add anything more to that. And then thirdly, I want to say this. If you've already come to that point, I want to encourage you with all the appetites that you have and that I have, with all the desires that you have and that I have, to continue to, to grow and expand and innovate and create and find new, new joys in life and taste new things and visit new places and, and you know, make more money and, and, and you know, travel and all the things that we love to do. Like, let those desires grow in you. That's, I, please, let them grow. And as they grow, let them continue to point you to Jesus the ultimate one who can ever satisfy any and all of those desires, that shalom, home, peace, fullness, life, joy, is found in Jesus. So when Jesus comes and says, I, I am the bread of life, the people expected an amazing miracle from the new Moses to provide for us for a whole generation. 
And Jesus says, if you want to be led by your eyes and not just your stomachs, you will see that the appetites of your stomach should drive your eyes to see that I am the Messiah, that God has sent me to be the bread of life, that all who come and believe will have life and life eternal. And so I want to encourage you, I want to invite you. If you have seen Jesus, but maybe not in that way, let's have that conversation now. Let's have that conversation around who in the world he is and how he has invited you and invited me to come and believe, no matter what. Next week, Jesus introduces himself in a brand new way, at least to the people there with the I am statement number two. Love to have you back next week for that. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be together in your word to see how Jesus works in engaging these people and trying to help all of us understand our appetites and put our appetites in perspective for the things that we really, really want in life. To give us some vision of the drive that is underneath all of the short-term appetites that we have. So I pray that the things that we long for now, the goals that we have, the things we're striving toward, working toward, the hopes that we have, that those wouldn't be diminished in any way. But that we can come and believe with a routineness that brings us to the cross of Jesus, with a regularity that says, I need to, to come before my heavenly Father, who has given us this manna in the wilderness, who has given us Jesus, that we can believe in what he has done for us, in the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy that he has extended, that we can live in the same way for the people around us, that we can find our true hope, our true meaning, our true fulfillment, our true love and joy in Jesus and not just in the people around us, the works around us, the accomplishments around us, those things which do indeed give us life. So we thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus, as the bread of life to meet the deepest needs of our souls. It's in Jesus' name.